I <laughs> I gotta say the the worst branding, like name wise for anything, has got to be Stairmaster <laughs> because they <laughs> they pigeonholed themselves. <laughs> I took Hiroko to physical therapy last week and she had to do like a like <clears throat> like a bike pedal thing, but for your arms. Oh, like elliptical? Uh kind of. But it was just the rotation with your arms. Oh, okay. It was like sitting down, but it was made by Stairmaster. So I'm looking all over this thing for the stairs. <laughs> Nowhere to be found. P- poor branding. Yeah, yeah. When you know, when you name your company Xerox and then it accidentally becomes ubiquitous with making a copy of a piece of paper, then all the other Xerox things are like doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> yeah, I Xerox, um, Q-tip is also one, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know why it's Q-tip. It doesn't look like a Q. Nope. I, and... I don't know. I don't know if the Q is short for like a term. Quality? Quick. Or, and then, or maybe it was like they had, you know, beta tested like A through <laughs> this is this is uh, formula 409 For, or formula whatever. q was the one that finally <laughs> finally broke through <laughs> yeah that's probably it god can you imagine b yeah what was the like b tip spike? like yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's actually a corkscrew from from like a wine opener what's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything like Like in Japan, there's uh, they obviously have Q-tips, um, but they have much sturdier ones, mm-hmm. so you can really, really crank it around in there. But it's I don't know if it's more common, but it's like a more traditional ear cleaning thing. It's like a tiny little scoop. Oh yeah, I've seen those. Like uh, they have those on like Instagram ads and shit now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's I'm never it's, sticking one of those things in my fucking ear. You crazy? <laughs> I've done it. It's it's not, you know, it's not as satisfying. It's it's not as satisfying an experience. Well, and um I don't there I I think the uh the ear cleaning thing is a uh weird extension of uh germophobia or something as if like, ooh, this this icky wax, it's so gross type of uh playing on that type of sensibility because if you talk to any like ear nose and throat doctor you're like not even supposed to try to get that shit out of your ear like it's all there for a reason and it's like a just a big conveyor belt of wax that's constantly building up and then being shoved out your ear and it'll clump up and fall out on its own like you putting anything in there is going to 
gum up the works <laughs> more than it's yeah, going to clean yeah. anything out. <laughs> but it's so fun. And then you complain about tinnitus and ringing in your ear and you wonder why. Maybe I it's because I've been jamming spikes in my ears. <laughs> Yesterday. Perforating my eardrum. I had what I think might be the first uh, TMJ experience mm. my i like my ear itched and i i you know stuck my finger in my ear and pushed up and forward and there was pain mm. and that's not an area where like ear infection is so i'm like do i have like a tumor growing on my skull or <laughs> Is this TMJ? Yeah, you you're you might just be hitting that nerve that like connects down to your jawbone, as you know, you might be. But that was the thing. There was no. It wasn't jaw pain. It was ear pain. But that's right where the TMJ joint mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. And then my jaw was like more stiff yesterday. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, I've been hearing my jaw squeak, mm. which is another sign. So. What are you going to uh, do? Gonna have to take a month off to get my jaw wired shut. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's kind of the... You'll look hot doctor, after going on that liquid diet, though. <laughs> I'm going to lose all this muscle mass I've built up over the year. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the doctor was like saying that I have moderate TMJ. And then he was like, "Do you, you do exercises for it, though, right? And I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, you got to. And I'm like... <laughs> This is the first I'm hearing that I have TMJ. <laughs> so what so, are the exercises like? Chew gum? Like what is? It's, <laughs> no, chewing gum is bad. Oh, it's um, bad. Okay. Yeah, it's different exercises. Like you stick your tongue on the roof of your mouth and then relax your jaw. Then you do other stuff where you're like, like holding with your thumb under your chin and then opening your jaw so there's resistance. Mm-hmm. Doing the same where you're holding the top of your chin and closing your mouth. Then you stick a quarter inch thick thing in between your teeth and move your jaw like left and right and then front and back. Um, but yeah, I so I'm going to be trying to do those because it's kind of one of those things that's like it it can progressively get worse, but that's it seems to be more just like a genetic thing if it'll get to the point where I need surgery. And then other people just have like kind of flare ups and then they do the exercises and it goes away. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing because I think it was also caused yesterday by me sleeping on that side weird, which, (laughs) how do you control how you sleep on your jaw? Yeah. I mean, do you have to get like a special, like, uh, face pillow or something so you don't like accidentally irritate it and cause like inflammation in those muscles that uh would put pressure on it or cause weird squeaky noises because i guess that's got to be what it is like you need to build up your your muscle strength around there with those exercises so that they're not prone to like fatigue and inflammation or something but it's the joint that's like the issue like the the cartilage there and then the bones like i don't know if the muscle really i mean it must help separate it or something the other problem is like i've noticed whenever i'm obviously not paying attention to my jaw which is like all of the day um 
for whatever reason, I'll pull my jaw back. Like, like my teeth sit, if I was to chew normally, I had braces and everything and they, you know, were supposed to fix this. So my teeth sit in a normal position, uh, but for whatever reason, I pull my jaw back and like tense it up. And I think that's also something that can cause problems. Okay. So you're like giving yourself an overbite when you're like pulling your jaw back and your top teeth end up like overbiting over your bottom. Yeah, but it's not, it's not like extreme. It's, I feel like it's more just the tension of it. Mm -hmm. Um, or I'll like, whenever I'm cutting veggies, I also realize I clench my teeth (laughs) for no reason. (laughs) The, yeah, there's a lot of those uh, weird uh, involuntary things when you get into like a focused state of working on something where you're really trying hard. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a big thing in music, you know, like uh, learning how to play music, but also relax all your muscles instead of like, man, I'm really trying to nail this. So I need to like hold the pick tighter in my hand and then I got to cl- tense up all the muscles in my forearms to like, oh, I'm really trying to nail it. Um, and like, uh, our, our drummer, Nick, uh, he, uh, I've, I played with him since he was like 15. Um, so he's always done this and we have like lots of recordings of it from when we've recorded songs, but, um, he holds his breath when he plays (laughs) (laughs) and it's totally like involuntary and unconscious, but you'll hear him count off like in, in a recording setting, you know, you'll hear the sticks click and then all of a sudden you'll hear this, (gasps) (laughs) he just takes the breath in and then when he gets really going he like there's this high-pitched like dolphin squeal like like you start to hear because he's slowly letting the air out from like his his body but there's not enough like open in his mouth to really let it all out so it almost sounds like the pressure is emitting from like his nasal cavity and his ears like just trying to get that air out of his body that he's been holding (laughs) is he like out of breath more than you would be oh yeah oh yeah like at the end of songs and he's like oh man you know and we're like remember to breathe remember to breathe nick (laughs) (laughs) but it it is like it's a it's a weird thing i imagine it's the same when you're really focused on doing art or especially getting on stuff like you do where you got to be really close and accurate with your um stencil cutting and all that type of stuff like you uh kind of shut off all the you do these things that uh, your body doesn't do naturally. <laughs> it's really yeah. Weird. I had to, I had to get those like squishy things to put on my Exacto blade, or it's not exact. I always call it exact. That's another one. I yeah, call the, it Exacto brand. It's, yeah, um, it's Excel blades, uh, but it's not as catchy, really. No, <laughs> but the they don't make the squishy things for the size of handle, <laughs> so it's mm. just crammed on there that it's like so thin that it's really not doing any barrier work but i would you know crank my fingers so much that like like my index finger would be bent back so far that i couldn't close when i was a kid i couldn't close that finger down Mm -hmm. for like the rest of the day yeah 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 um which i'm sure it's probably similar to like holding a pick Oh if yeah. And I and kind of I I would get that when I was a kid and from like playing video games like you know you're really trying to get through a tough part and then your hand is like uh 
especially like your right thumb, which is like your button thumb. It gets like kind of locked in that position. And then like the mm-hmm. rest of the day, you're trying to work it out because you've like been stuck in this claw, gripping the controller way too hard this whole time, trying to fight through something. It's stupid. Those Just Nintendo relax. controllers too. <laughs> yeah, those those original NES ones were brutal because they were like all the hard corners and everything. Uh, you'd get <laughs> you'd get like that. You. you get a great uh, little wear blister like right on the inside of your index finger knuckles because there were no like triggers or anything. So you'd always like end up rubbing those raw on the two corner outside corners. Did you ever play with anyone that wore like fingerless gloves? No, no. <laughs> No, I was never around that 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 level of pro who was like, oh, "I'm staving off arthritis. I'm 11 years old. I got to wear these gloves." <laughs> you know, I need to see I need to see some of your fashion from when you were a kid cuz I'm picturing like mesh shirts. <clears throat> I don't and, know if uh, I ever had a mesh one. A lot of splatter paint t-shirts, puffy okay. paint t-shirts. Did you t-shirts. make them yourself? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know how you do when you're a kid. Um, uh, a lot of, uh, biker shorts, like spandex biker shorts were a big thing when I was in elementary school in the late eighties. So like every kid wore spandex biker shorts. Yeah. Like Uh, to school? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there, there was a kind of a trend for like a year where, uh, all the kids wore water shoes like you know the water shoes from the 80s that were like the slip-on kind that were kind of mesh and then the bottom were like a really thin rubber with like a little texturing on them into the river or something like that's what they're designed but people wore them to school as like fashion huh yeah i so definitely went through that period and then i had a big suspenders period like Oh boy. Wore suspenders with everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, suspenders did make a comeback with uh like pop punk and emo kind of bands when I was yeah, in yeah, high yeah. school. So the hot topic suspenders of like yes. the thin black ones or whatever, the little skull ones. Yeah. My style was um I had a belt buckle for sure. Um most of the time it was a fox racing belt buckle. All right. Um, You're a big motocross guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I rode dirt bikes when I was a kid. Uh, I nearly um, broke my chest one time, like cracked a rib because I was going through a field and I don't know. I, I mean, I had, it was like a 110 or something. So it wasn't, wasn't adult sized because I was probably 12 or 13, but I was, I got up to maybe four. 40 miles an hour or so mm-hmm. uh, just in an open field and uh all of a sudden just a giant hunk of concrete <laughs> was in front of me and uh yeah i i bent up the fender bent the handlebars with my chest oh man so so your chest hit the handlebars instead of you just totally endoing and flying over the front it was small enough that the front wheel it was probably a third of the height of the wheel so it was enough to hit it and cause damage, but still launch me. Yeah. So I hit it and like, uh, I, I held on to the dirt bike, but I think I like, I mean, I'm pretty sure I got a concussion and like just fell over. Um, but yeah, that was a, so dirt biking was big, but it was in the era where jeans 
you wanted baggy jeans, not Jinkos, but baggy jeans mm-hmm. that went past your the back of your shoe so that right, they would right. get like rubbed off. You got to get them you... frayed. You got to wear them to get them frayed. And you <laughs> right. can't buy them pre-fit frayed. Like that's no, no, no. That's poser shit. Yeah, and so, but then you walk through like a puddle, and your entire up to you, the <laughs> yeah, back just of your knee is up. soaked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, and then the final thing was wearing a hat that you took a quarter and rubbed the like fabric lining on the front brim off. Oh, see, we didn't. I I I had the hats, but it was just because they got worn down. We ne- I never like distressed them after I purchased them. They were just wore down, and uh, eventually, I had a couple that eventually like the the fabric on the whole bill like had just kind of become unplied to the piece of plastic that was the bill. Mm-hmm. So then I had like these uh, just plastic build hats because I just ripped the fabric off and it just retained <laughs> the piece of plastic sewn into the the sweatband. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of a look, I think. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that was the only thing I ever distressed. Other than my vans, I cut off the heels because I was I outgrew them. You, so you um, made them slides? <laughs> I did make them slides. Uh, I made them slides, and I was the only one in my high school that wore them uh, like that. And then I uh, had a kid come up to me once, and he was like kind of a friend. He was, he was like a year or two younger than me. And uh, he was like, hey, so um, I really like the way you have your shoes, and would you mind if I did that to my shoes too? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, that's cool. Like, yeah, go for it. I mean, that's that's the thing where, uh, you know, you're worried about, you see something cool, but you're worried about everyone thinking that you just copied someone else. So you I want, think, yeah. You want to kind of get was, the permission. <laughs> he was worried that I was going to be upset that he like- And then tell all also, his friends, oh, that, that asshole's just copying me. <laughs> no, no. He was a, a sweet kid. Uh, no idea what his name was, <laughs> but he was nice. Um, so I know we've been going for a few minutes here, but, um, did you want to talk about the state of the country at all? Uh, which state of which country? The, this country. Oh, the United ones. Um, I don't know, like what's going to happen? Every, everything that we thought was going to happen. I, it's. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the the thing that I'm mostly interested in, uh, just trying to work through is, okay, the right wing people have a pretty solid grip over things, and um, I'm also reading through the book, The Anatomy of Fascism, Mm -hmm. which is a huge book. I don't know if you've read it, but it is uh, very good (laughs) at breaking down all of the different like fascist movements that happens across Europe uh, and, you know, the U.S. and other countries. And the only thing that kept um, fascism from rising in countries, so it appears, I'm only like a third of the way through the book, is a strong, um, more socialist kind of network in the country. Like France had... Uh, during the 30s, some some fascist parties tried to take rise, and like Hollywood in the 1950s. That's why we had to have Joseph McCarthy in there to clean that shit up. 
Yeah. So again, which side did he fall on? <laughs> yeah. Um, it is. It was like apparently, and this is written by one historian's kind of perspective. So I'm I'm taking it with some grains of salt. Uh, but he's saying like most people think in France they're you know liberté and and uh you know individual freedoms and stuff were so strong that they were just averse to having fascism Mm -hmm. but really it was because in other countries where it took hold like um in oh i can't remember which country it was but there was a country that like all they the had, ones surrounding France had different fascist moments. <laughs> right. Spain did. Germany yeah, certainly. You can pick one, really. Italy definitely. <laughs> I mean, fascism comes from Italy. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember which country it was, which I'm beating myself up about, but it was essentially there was a a socialist government that came into power and they um, started, uh, what is it? turning all of like the farmland into public land and Mm -hmm. turning all of the farmers into public whatever, um, which I think is, you know, there's different ways that you get into good, better societies and politics and stuff. I think having publicly uh, funded and backed food for everyone is a very good idea. Um, (laughs) I disagree strongly with Pete Buttigieg. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) But they they turned all the farmland into public land. But the farmers struggled to make enough money themselves based off of that because the way they did it was very sloppy and very fast. And, you know, this has been pointed out before, but the reason that the the Soviet Union, one of the big reasons failed in Russia is because there has to be like a lot of misery and death and everything in order for people to understand that moving forward with uh, public goods is something that's good. So it should not be the good politics doing it. It should be like capitalism running through people. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, oh, okay, like we can now work together to build these things. If you say, no, we're socialists now, then they're going to think it's socialism causing the problems. Um, Right. And the Soviet Union had some very specific scientific problems with the way that they approached agriculture and food beyond just the uh, natural kind of um, aristocratic corruption that was operating within the guise of their socialist project that, you know, robbed money from the coffers of those different agricultural projects. But the, the own, we've talked about it before, but their entire like science behind farming and like how uh, biodiversity works amongst plants was pretty bogus. I mean, you could have the same argument going on right now with the baby formula crisis. If you had the, like if it was, you know, controlled by the government and they were the ones coming up with, well, we should use, instead of, uh, you know, making sure the machines are cleaned and repaired and everything so the bacteria doesn't grow, why don't we just turn this into a, a tax raising thing where we're, we're creating stocks and everyone sells the stocks to each other and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which is exactly what the company is doing. But now you can see people are like, okay, the capitalism is bad about this, not the you know government running it is bad about this. But the the farmers had nowhere to turn to um, 
get money. Uh, they were the they were the owners of the farms, though, and the workers there began to strike because they weren't getting paid. So, the farmers, who again are the owners of this, they turned to I believe in this country they were called like the green shirts or something, but they were the fascists, and they came in and killed all of the strikers until they went back to work. Mm-hmm. And that's how they, you know, it was because they thought the system of collective ownership was bad. So they needed to turn to somebody who was going to take it into their own hands and make sure that production continued and the farmers could make money. So here's where I come back to the U.S. These things are driven by normal people. So the right wing has such a strong hold over the way things are operating that in media, in local government, school boards, and federal government, all of the institutions and everything are losing credibility, which I don't think the institution should have that much credibility to begin with, but they're eroding those things and the people only see that those things are eroding so they don't have much else to turn to and whenever you can have a popular movement take hold of that and say we're the solution for everybody and hyper localize it with advertising where you say your concerns are our concerns even if they contradict somebody else's Mm -hmm. advertisement that they're getting it works on a large scale so I'm wondering, you know, there is no social network in this country that would save people from turning to those things because if the, in that country where they hired the fascists to kill the strikers, um, if they did have a social network like they had in France where they were like, no, food is an essential good, we're going to take care of the farmers and the workers and everything, then they don't turn to the fascists. Well, there's no system like that here so i don't know what to do because it's like there's a and i don't think there's an answer to it that's very easy but there's like two things you can do you can either wait and you know you can try to get involved politically but you know there were protests this past weekend and is that changing the scotus decision no congress immediately uh voted to give the justices uh, social security <laughs> or not social security uh, personal private security <laughs> and, private and security. extra protections beyond what the constitution gives them to prevent them yeah. from the scary people who might be you know shouting dissenting opinions at them yeah and this is bipartisan too mm-hmm. um they they voted or tried to vote uh f- what was it 40 billion in aid to ukraine when... i think it was 80 oh my god so <laughs> um and they're they're now saying we're at war with Russia. Like you have people in Congress saying that, which is obviously not great. Um, <clears throat> but that's a little beside the point. So you either wait around, you try to get involved politically, but it's not much to do politically there. You wait around to defend against it, like individually or community. And, you know, if things trend in a certain way then that's going to mean very serious Mm -hmm. (laughs) confrontations Uh, or you try to collectively confront these people but then it's like well when and where like 
at a protest that's already got a, a permit from the city and the cops are there and you have counter protesters that are the right wingers you're wanting to bring down a peg. But, you know, if you need to know which side the cop is on, look which side they have at their back. Like they're protecting the counter protesters all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's a right wing rally, then they face the counter protest. It's not hard to see. Uh, so then you think, well, okay, is it, I don't know. It, you come to down to like, well, wh- when and where do you even confront these things? Like the other day at the store, I saw a guy with a MAGA bucket hat on, which looked ridiculous. And <laughs> I'm thinking like, okay, what do I do in this situation? That's obviously a statement. You steal it's, his hat. You know that it's a, a, it is backing a racist statement. Even if this guy would say he's not racist, obviously there's, he doesn't understand what that means, if that's even the case, but I'm pretty sure he's racist. Yeah. Okay, well, we've got all different types of people in here, and I'm disagreeing with that, but what do I say? You know, do I go up and say something to him? He doesn't say anything back to me, then I look like a lunatic to right. people there's around. No dia- there's no opportunity for like a dialectic. <laughs> right. Not- <laughs> he says something back to me. I'm probably not going to get in a screaming match, but that doesn't accomplish anything. Uh, he swings on me, which I doubt he would do, um, but that's possible. Okay, his his partner swings on me. Then I'm not going to just get hit for no reason. So I keep her back. Then he freaks out, pulls out a gun and shoots me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay, so that's not a great outcome. I I walk up to some random person and say, look at this stupid hat so that they know that I think it's stupid. That doesn't accomplish anything. So I don't know. What are your prescriptions? Um, th- I think this is a, uh, I think uh, it's, it's a observation that's in lots of things that can be viewed from the general collectivist political duopoly type of thing that you're talking about from a nationwide standpoint. But it also boils down to all of your local community politics, too. And I'm one for who's always said, like, um, yeah, it sucks to have Donald Trump as a president. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, voting for president has much less direct impact on your life than if you would just show up to your city council elections and vote for those people in your own town. Yeah, yeah. that that matters a lot more. But that type of partisan um, way of dealing with politics has completely um, penetrated these uh, local type of elections and local type of um, political positions where those used to kind of be considered nonpartisan things because what does it matter what your city councilman thinks about like gay marriage uh, these types of issues like that's not gonna he ultimately like they're talking more about like public works and like how are we going to, is it time to put new, uh, new water lines in, in this district and all that type of stuff. You're talking a much, a lot more granular type of issues with the city and very rarely will any type of big culture war issue be a thing that is happening 
on the ground at this street intersection where you are specifically representing a few hundred people from a district. Like there's our our mayor that was elected a couple years ago was the most left-leaning mayor that was a serious candidate. And she won um, pretty handily. There's no rent cap in this city. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Like that's, that is, you know, it's, you have, you get to the point where it like becomes this thing where you're like, well, I don't want the, the straight up like libertarian winning, but the best option is somebody who's not even going to do a policy that would benefit like everyone that lives here because the people that own property don't live here. Right, right. And, and but that's the thing is like the constituents on the local level are going to be these small business owners, um, the people who are uh, real estate developers that just bought huge swaths of property in your community and want to raise it and put in new stuff and are trying to get, you know, tax credits or tax abatement to different types of things from the city as an incentive to build certain types of projects, all that. So there is much more of a, uh, I guess, transactional nature of local politics that sort of supersedes the partisan nature of uh, federal politics or even like statewide politics. However, like the where I was getting to is like the specific example that's going on here in Dallas and that I experienced when we were playing a show last Thursday. Um, so like there's been a lot of shootings in Deep Ellum recently. And like there's really no uh, police intervention plan to stop this from happening or a way to prevent it from happening. Um, because, you know, Texas, like, we have no laws against, uh, concealed carry. Like, you can open carry long rifles and you can conceal carry handguns and you don't have to have a permit or a license or anything to do that. Um, which means, like, anyone and everyone can legally be carrying a handgun inside their waist and it doesn't matter. Like, they can do that. So, if... A uh, if beef happens between two people out on the street at 3 a.m. waiting in line for for some barbecue from a food truck, like the easy way for them to to deal with that situation with each other is just pull the gun out that they have in their west their waistbands and shoot at each other, which then causes like more people to get caught in like crossfire, and like the only thing that could make these situations worse if, is if like cops then showed up and then also traded fire and turned it into like three-way crossfire type situation um so luckily like the cops haven't been doing that but the other intervention that they've been doing is sending code compliance officers to clubs to fine and ticket clubs for noise violations or um occupancy restriction violations thinking and like that intervention isn't addressing any of the problems that's causing the the shootings either so you're kind of at a place where unless there is a complete change in perspective on the availability of weapons and how we in the state of texas allow people to just carry no matter what the case is there's not an intervention that you can do you could even like 
do a massive police oversight presence down there. And it's not like they're going to, even if they were stopping and frisking everybody, they can't do anything if someone has a gun. Like, it's legal. Um, what are you going to do? Like, you could do more if, like, the guy had a little bit of weed on him <laughs> than you could right. for having a gun. So you end up in these situations where socially and collectively there is not a tailor-made intervention and the public safety wing of the local politics will try to sell you on the fact that, well, we just need to give a bigger budget to the police and then they'll be able to remedy this. But that's not going, throwing more money at this situation by hiring more cops or whatever is not going to stop anyone from being able to carry whatever gun they want in their waistband at any time they want. Um, so you're stuck in these situations where you don't have a prescription unless it's an actual like societal change on the way that people view access to these types of weapons. Um, if you have an actual local cultural change instead of, um, removing benefits for the homeless, you have much more affordable housing measures instead of, um, reducing the budget that you have put towards, um, mental health interventions, you actually fund those things instead of cops, instead of, uh, trying to eliminate, um, efforts to have equitable income disbursement amongst all races inside the city. You, you know, side with more of the corporate overlords and be like, yeah, it's really not the city's business to be in charge of any kind of like, uh, employee rights or the way that anyone should, any business or boss should treat their employees, then you're never going to actually get down to the root of the thing that is causing the shootings willy nilly by people at 3am in different places throughout the city. So, um, I, you know, I'm kind of at the point with that type of stuff where I'm just very accepting of it. Like I'm not shocked or astonished or, I don't even feel like it's sad that uh, people got hurt as bystanders um, on Thursday night. It's sad that uh, two the the guys who were shooting at each other, one of them died. But I don't feel the um, this sense of encompass uh, un all encompassing loss or tragedy from that, as if like you can't because it happens so many times. Well, like, and you. you literally cannot yeah <laughs> your brain doesn't make those chemicals anymore and the idea that you you have to stop being a reactionary person that thinks that oh this is not who we are or oh i saw the shooting in buffalo and this is just these are this is an outlier to the american experience americans aren't really like this this is not our culture. We are better than this, and we should be more exemplary of the best examples of our society and not held to the standard of the worst examples of our society. And in my viewpoint, I just say, this is our culture. Like, this is it. Embrace, embrace your culture. This is, what we've, this is what we are. So don't be shocked by it. Just embrace it. No longer be the people that are like, ooh, I don't want to... I don't want a vacation in Central America because those countries are kind of scary. Anything could happen to me there. Realize that 
No one wants to vacation in your country because anyone can get shot any night of the week, any place in the in the entire in in the entire country. Um, embrace your culture, and if that's uncomfortable, then maybe that's when uh, you can you can make changes. But as long as the the running line from everybody on both sides of the political spectrum is always going to be this is not who America is. If that's the starting point of any of the conversations, then nothing's going to change. It's not going to change. Nothing will change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like a I don't know. I'm I'm trying to find ways for myself to do something. Like that's why I've like changed the way that I do my art stuff where now um for sure. I mean, I I would like donate cuz I think that's donate money to uh mutual aid networks and stuff like that. I would do it on my own whenever, you know, I could. Um but now I'm like committing uh 15% of like the whole sale to it. Mm-hmm. Um which I mean, 15% doesn't sound like a whole lot, but I don't the way that I price it, there's there's almost no profit on yeah. what I actually make. You just like, marked everything is, up by fifteen percent to 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 me. <laughs> right. You did the you did the Walmart thing. Yeah. Uh but like, you know, considering costs and then the amount of time that I would consider billing myself, which is at um essentially a minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. Seven dollars <laughs> like an hour. It takes me yeah. to do it. Um yeah, it's not it's not a whole lot of money, but it's something that I can do. But I like other than that, it is uh there's not a whole lot. You know, I I heard somebody say like uh protests are good to go to because it helps other people know that they're not alone in their mm-hmm. frustration. But um politically it doesn't get anything done. Like this the stuff that gets stuff done is stuff we can't say <laughs> that gets stuff done. Right, right, right. And I, this goes back to uh, Paulo Freire and uh, pedagogy of the oppressed and the stuff we talked about with end of policing and all of those types of things. Like when we were talking about, you know, institutional and systemic racism in America, we talked specifically about we can't view that as abstract observers. We have to first realize how we are part of that. Like, even right. if I'd never viewed myself as a racist, I have to go back and evaluate like all of those things that all of my priors, all of my bias, all of the things. And then I have to accept all of those failures in myself because I have to actually admit that I am racist. Like it, it's a real part of who I am was in the past and it's things that I've that I have to work with because I am a product of the culture and the environment at which I grew up in that I had no control over it doesn't mean that I don't have control over how I engage with that reality but it does mean that I have to accept where I came from and what what is the things that made me intrinsically who I am? Even though I didn't choose those things necessarily from the beginning, these are the things that are me. So I have to wrestle with that as an individual and as a 
person who is part of the complex reality of history that is going on, not just some weird alien that gets to like look at look at a TV screen that doesn't have to participate in it. Um, and I don't think that anyone can make headway in any kind of cathartic race relations or equality issues unless they can see themselves in the as the racist who lives inside them um right so i i think that's still like one of the biggest problems and we've talked about a lot just the the uncomfortability with self-consciousness that that we have especially in america the uncomfortability that we have of introspection um we are constantly reinforced that we're these self-made arbiters of our own destiny and having to ever look in the mirror belies and betrays that false mythology that we all buy into and so I think a lot of people just avoid doing it or it doesn't even they don't even consider doing it um and there's not going to be much progress unless there's like these types of big awakenings that happen amongst large groups of people which is goes back to the thing that Freire said and happened in the French Revolution and everything else like shit's got to get really bad before it can get better and you know maybe we need Trump round two maybe we you know it didn't get bad enough it didn't get bad enough and the thus complacency set in and complacency won out won the day and so now it's got to get really worse than what we thought was rock bottom before you can overcome the complacency issue (laughs) yeah and that's i mean like the the abortion issue is it's not like i want to spend the whole time doing this but it's just we've been off for i mean the the abortion decision came out like when we had our episode with brett Payne and yeah I knew they had talked about it enough on their show and it didn't. Oh, yeah. And then it was in in between when uh, the Amy Comey Barrett addendum came out about uh, we just need to we just need to increase the domestic supply of unwanted children for adoption so we can have more domestic adoptions. Her her great white replacement theory code words that she had to add to it. Yeah. I mean, the the great white replacement theory is I heard. Alexander Edward on on um, uh, Minion Death Cult mentioned he's like just the idea that they're buying into the great replacement theory it's like so are you admitting that there's a benefit to being a majority white like a white person in America right right (laughs) it's not white supremacy um, it's uh (laughs) right so but like the abortion issue is you know I I think it's they're able to use religion to manipulate people, but it is not something that they don't understand the science on. They don't care about the science. Um, it's not something that they care about the health of mothers or anything. The reason they're doing it is because they think people that don't want to have kids should be punished by having kids. They they think that punishment is the correct prescription to somebody that they don't view worthy of having you know 
ultimately choice in their own life mm-hmm. because they don't think that you should have choice. They they also think there should be, I mean, this goes along with Amy Coney Barrett, but they think there should be a domestic supply of very cheap labor. And if you yeah. make poor people have to have children because they don't have access to anything, but they can't provide for a kid, so they stay in poverty, and the kid grows up in poverty, and then, then you, they're going to take the and, McDonald's job. And then you uh, rip the rug out from under the public school system, so you also don't have to educate those poor children anymore. And so the only kids yeah. that actually get educated are the ones that can go to private school. It's, and you don't teach those other children that there is systemic racism because you don't want the white kids feeling bad about it, which is not what happens but you know it's um i think understanding that it's not that if you can just make a solid argument they're going to understand it it is that they want to punish people they believe other people deserve to be punished based off of just who they are their mm-hmm. racial makeup their religious makeup um their cultural background if they're any a of those slut things. Yeah. So it shouldn't not, open your legs if you didn't want to didn't want to have a kid. Yeah, it's I mean it's not anything to do with any logical reasoning. They just want those people to suffer for it. So you got to get that through your head that it's not it's not something where it's like telling them abortions are still going to exist. This just ends safe abortions they don't care they want the people to die or have the kid yeah <laughs> yeah th- there's not that's right there's no ground for an actual dialectical reasoning type of give and take with there's going to be what i call willful willful ignorance to like the science or to any sort of rational argument about any of these things it has there's not an opportunity to have that type of real dialogue to make any kind of headway. Like the intention is to not have that dialogue. Um, yeah, exactly. And th- you know, this goes back to the re- recognizing that you're a racist um, type of conversation. But I think the re- the religion angle on this is huge. The longer that um, people who are practicing um, organized religion and are part of a congregation, and even if they think of themselves as progressive and I go to, like, uh, they say, like, they go to a Unitarian church or even if they're, like, go to Catholic church or anything like that, um, and they say, yeah, I mean, there's, there's these crazy wackos that want to distort our faith, but that's not the true tenant of Jesus' teaching or whatever, um, whoever they're, uh, savior is the uh, I think the underlying problem there is being being a member of the church ever since I was a little kid one of the first things you learn is that the church is not the building the church is the congregation the church is the people you are the church because God lives inside you and when a bunch of people who all believe get together, they can get together in the middle of a field, they can be together in prison, they can be anywhere, but wherever two people of like faith congregate, that is the church. So you have to grapple with the fact that associating yourself with the congregation makes you complicit. And 
that can be very tough to hear, especially if, you know, faith to you has been a guiding principle in your life and you've noticed only like good sort of moral reflections in in you practicing that faith. Um, but the reality of the situation is if the entire Christendom has been hijacked, like I hear a lot of progressive Christians talk about, if you think Christendom has been hijacked by the right-wing evangelists, um, the you, if you continue to congregate with that, with Christendom, you are complicit in that movement. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's just a huge issue of still being willing to go along with organized religion because there's more of a fear of some afterlife consequence for not doing it and taking a stand and saying, fuck this, none of this is moral, I'm, I don't need this. Um, the, the fear of potentially ending up in hell or something like that because you reject the religion, that fear is greater than you wanting to do good for other people on the planet today, right now. So I think that is another introspective self-reflection moment that people have to have with themselves, and that's going to be very uncomfortable, but that's a huge one that has to happen before things are going to get better. And I, the biggest thing that could make a lot of this change is if a ton of people just started to reject organized religion altogether right now. But that's going to require a lot of self-reflection. And like we said, I don't think a lot of people like to do that. Even as much as Christians like to pretend like prayer is some self-reflective act, it's not. Prayer is fucking a wish list to God for your own providence. So I, I think that that's a big that's a big underlying issue that even the most progressive of the religious have not yet had to grapple with the fact that they're actually more concerned with their place in an afterlife than they are willing to do things right now for people on this planet that need help in the current well, I mean, time. Planet is made of sin, Josh. It's an easy, easy. Act. Right, right. And I think that's the, the, the resting state for many evangelicals and right-wing people is they want the rapture to happen now. They pray every day for the world to end. They, like, they want Armageddon to happen tomorrow. It's the reason why we protect Israel, because that's where it's going to go down. Like, there is all of that that is the real uh, sort of crazy belief system of a lot of the leaders in that community but i don't think that's necessarily the unified held belief by all of the congregation that makes up the church and instead of pretending like there's some sort of uh principled battle that's going on in the congregation between progressive wings of churches and right-wing wings of churches just throw the throw the fucking organization away like you don't to be a progressive humanist right now you don't need it you don't need it and <laughs> god forbid that that might jeopardize the 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 level of mansion that you're going to get in the millennial kingdom <laughs> yeah i i mean i i don't think there's i don't know i i have such a hard time now <laughs> conceptualizing how like 
I as an adult would believe <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in religion. So it's it's complicated, but it's I understand how people could be raised in it. I don't know. My grandfather was uh his his parents were not religious at all, but he went to church because it was like free daycare. And so I guess he was kind of raised in it, but he was a preacher. So I mean, I guess I can see how you I think you got to be raised in it. Nobody as an adult would choose it. Oh, you, um, I, I think you can be very susceptible to it. Like that, that's suppose, why yeah. that, that's why they go to like death row inmates and they go to like people who are in the worst, like, uh, addiction throes of addiction and stuff like that. And that's why those are the targets of a lot of missionary work is because you can grab people when they're at their absolute rock bottom and you can get them to believe anything if they if you, if you tell them that it'll save their soul or they'll get forgiveness for some of the bad things they've done in their life. Yeah. I don't know. I just if if you're <laughs> if you're listening and considering anything about your church just wonder, you know, where is the money that gets donated going to? Are you getting a new sound system and projector? Uh, or is it going directly to the homeless population that lives there so that they can have shelter? Or but even then, actually, even if it's great missionary work, it's col- it's colonizer mentality. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's well, all strings attached. But, well, that's kind of the thing is uh Nobody ever says, yeah, it's going directly to the homeless people. <laughs> right. It's, it's it, that's never the case. So, um, like, even I remember in Waco, they had this uh, organization that did Church Under the Bridge, which was for homeless people. And they, they did it under I 35s. So, an insanely dangerous place to be. Um, but at least it was out of the sun and heat in the summer. Uh, but yeah, they would have the homeless people of Waco come to it. And then of course, Baylor kids would go to it so that they could, um, you know, get their heart rate up and be afraid around homeless people and then get to tell everybody for a week they went there. Uh, but the homeless people went there because they served food, but you had to show up at the beginning and sit through the whole thing before they would give you Mm -hmm. any food, which is psychotic if you think about it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I think the uh, I, I think the biggest sort of uh, bellwether or canary in the coal mine type of thing for this is that you know we have people now that are on the Supreme Court that are just a few years older than us and we have people that are senators now that are our age and we have people that are in the House of Representatives that are younger than, than I am. But I don't think any of them are like, yeah, I'm an I'm an atheist. And no. that is the that is the that's the signal like right there that I, I think is a huge issue when this is like projected onto the political spectrum. And then that is somehow the reflection of the will of the people and all of that. If you truly believe the uh, the the different statistics that show like organized religion is is waning in America and now like less than 48 percent people say that they believe in an afterlife or believe in God or any you know of any kind um you would think that maybe that polling would incentivize people to be like yeah I, 
fuck religion. Like, I'm not running on any kind of religious morality bullshit. This is this is who I am, a secular humanist. Get get behind my get behind my campaign. But the fact that that's not happening is still somewhat astonishing. Like, you have even um um like even even in local politics like it's a big thing at least in Dallas to still like really tout like your religious acumen and what churches you go to and who you fellowship with and what bible bible studies you're a member of and i don't know the uh it's it's weird that it's got such a stranglehold and it has to be somehow like a desired personality characteristic of anyone that we would think would be a leader of any kind of group of people. <laughs> yeah, that's to be a leader, you have to show you're just a, a sucker, right? To follow somebody else. Yeah, it's a weird. It's it's definitely weird when it comes to politics, but it's it's only used in bad ways. Yeah, you know, um, so it justifies so many things that are uh bad and morally bad and not even outside of the religion bad like you could find um biblical texts that definitely say a lot of the things that the bible is used to justify is actually not good but the bible is like full of contradictions so well and you can also find something to justify it that's that's the big thing and i had this conversation with justin and tc uh last weekend in chicago but the you know, the the Jesus people, the people that are like, I am not for organized Christianity or religion, but I really like that Jesus guy. You know, he he was out there just like multiplying loaves of bread, feeding hungry people, making the blind see, you know, uh, taking the prostitute side of the story so that she didn't get stoned to death and just doing good things, good things out in the world for people. And that is the most bastardized version of Jesus's character that <laughs> I hear at all. Because if you grew up in the religion and you really studied this stuff, like, you know, the major, like the big event of Jesus's life, you know, when uh, Judas sells him out to the Romans, uh, that comes on Passover where Jesus has a big party to celebrate his favorite time that his dad murdered over a million innocent Egyptian children. Like that's what he's celebrating. Like this awesome time where a bunch of brown kids got murdered to, to free the he- Hebrews and it was totally justified. Um, so no, Jesus is not a big progressive leader. And not only that, but if you think the sacrifice of a son for all the man, all of mankind's sins is some sort of noble gesture, um, I would consider, I would ask you to reconsider your morality. If God came to you and told you, well, all you got to do is kill your kid and then everyone else gets to go to heaven. Like that is not moral in any sense, especially if you believe that God is somehow an all-powerful being that could do whatever he wanted, why would it be required of one individual to have to then be sacrificed, a human sacrifice? That seems very strange to me. Like, it's the same 
rationale of sacrificing a virgin to a volcano to get rain to happen or something. I, I, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And to think of that, that's some sort of like noble gesture that was done by a benevolent, gracious, um, all powerful God makes no fucking sense. Um, you know, and if that is your morality, then why are you not, you know, not not in death, but why are you not sacrificing yourself to help people <laughs> that are here right, right, right now? Like sacrificing some time to do something or some money. But and, to... but then that that gets into the big problem too of the of the people who are like, well, I was always a Rich Mullins Christian who was like really against all those people who just spouted faith without works. Like I thought works was a big deal. And, you know, you had to justify your faith through your actions. But again, part of the big, awesome part of Christianity is you don't have to do the works. All you got to do is the believe part and you get forgiven. You get forgiven for all the bad shit you did. And if you do all good works, but you don't have the believe part, it doesn't matter how many good works you did. You don't get access to heaven. Um so you have like that force field in Christianity too. Um, but then like we talked about, like with missionary work and everything else, um, what, what you consider good works, um, if you really start to think about it are very morally tenuous. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about like the abortion issue and stuff like that, when talk about how, yeah, well, adoption is a better alternative. Like, if we have to, if we don't have um, abortions, well, at least we could, like, have loving families be able to take these kids that are unwanted or something. And when you really start to look into the history of adoption, you realize that it is a very um, amoral type of approach to human breeding practices it's almost like puppy mills and uh, the way that a lot of these mothers are treated um with the concept that they have to they have to give up their kid because they could never provide their kid with the life that maybe another family could because they have better resources so really you giving up your child is the best thing you could do as a mother by giving it better opportunities so rather than live in a society that provides all mothers with the types of resources to raise children in an equitable way, we instead say, hey, uh, shouldn't you let a, like a richer white family raise those kids? Because uh, you're kind of not going to be able to do it. And so that justifies us. You, you have to give birth to this kid and give it to someone else. It's When the government has the capability of just making sure that mother could raise their kid. Yeah, and maybe, maybe we do a whole episode on adoption because I've been reading a lot about it over the last few weeks. Because Nikki and I really were, you know, considering it for a while there after we um, couldn't have kids um, together. Um, but yeah, it, it gets... Once you get past the warm, fuzzy feelings of, oh, my God, we're going to do something so good for a needy child, um, it gets real tenuous real fast. <laughs> oh, boy. And uh, then all of the uh, sort of how, how kids who are adopted are basically uh, told or implied or raised in an environment and in a society and in a culture where they're kind of supposed to just shut off 
half of their emotional reserve that might have gone towards whoever their birth parents were because since they got adopted, you kind of have to consider these parents that are raising you your real parents. And if if anything, you should have no feelings towards whoever your original parents were or you should have animosity towards them. And that's like a really weird expectation to put on kids and have them internalize from the very beginning when they're when they're being raised. Um, And that there's a lot of, uh, you know, different psychological profiles and papers that have been written about sort of the adopted childhood mentality and how that manifests later on in life um, and the different coping mechanisms that uh children deal with because those they never got to explore those feelings or they were almost taught that it was taboo to even like entertain those types of emotions that are a real part of their existence um yeah so there's there's a whole lot of stuff on adoption but yeah we maybe do a whole episode on it (laughs) yeah um well i mean how do you feel (laughs) Well, I feel good. We talked for an hour now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's tricky. I don't know. I, the adoption thing is very interesting cuz my dad was adopted and uh he definitely had I haven't spoken to him in uh 7 years, but he had extreme animosity towards his parents that gave him up and then i don't know it seems he would tell you that he you know uh loved his adopting adoptive parents um but it seemed like it was had animosity towards them and then i think he was also one of the older kids in the orphanage before he was picked up which is like maybe two or three so then also internalize some stuff and there's a whole lot (laughs) to unpack if you're a psychologist but you know You'd have to convince them to go. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know. It's it's a summation to say that the there are the societal issues that are bringing all of these things to a forefront and ahead right now that we know the cause of, but we don't know. I, I think I know the solution to, but it's something that... Um, would take so much time and effort and work that it seems like instead of shortcutting the bad stuff, it's just going to be, <laughs> but, and it's, it's hard because I'm not like a pessimistic person. Yeah. Um, you don't want to be, you don't want to become cynical. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, um, there's like, and I'm not somebody who's like, you know, I say like there's bad stuff and there's confrontation that's imminent with, uh, these things politically and probably personally um, and most likely the way things are going individually. It's not like I'm looking forward to any of that stuff. No. And it's not like I, you know, I think, I think guns are bad um, in this country. It would be great to wipe all of them out. Um, the way things are going, I think having an armed left could work if there was some some sort of organization to it but there isn't any you know um yeah but i'm myself i i I was i i 
the first time I shot a revolver, I was six. Like I've shot, I grew up shooting guns all of the time. Oh yeah. Um, Same here. And I, I know how to, uh, use a weapon properly. Um, I'm not ever, I don't think going to own a gun. Cause I, the way that I view things is except for extreme cases, um, there's no reason to kill somebody else and I'm not going to be the person to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the the number of extreme cases are certainly climbing <laughs> right um, but like like the you d- you don't have an envisioning in your mind where it's i could justify a reason to kill someone because they were breaking into my car or i could justify no, a reason to kill someone because they broke into my house while i was there. like i wouldn't i don't know the the that's not the way that I would approach any of these situations. And I felt like right. if I had a gun at home, it'd be much more likely that Nikki would shoot me or I would shoot her out of, you know, in an, out of an accident because we were freaked out because someone we thought we had to protect ourselves from someone breaking in the house or something like that. Um, like that's the statistical likelihood is that way more than you are actually going to do something to to protect your own life, there's going to be an accident where someone else gets hurt. Um, it's the same reason why I won't like, if someone broke into my house, I won't call the cops. Like the last thing I need is a bunch of cops showing up to my house, maybe like five minutes after someone left who broke in with their guns drawn. And then them mistaking me for the guy who broke into my house and shooting me. I, 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 I just don't see how, those types of interventions actually make anything better. Yeah. I mean, it's like me personally, I would, why would I keep it in my house? The only reason I can view or understand having like a weapon in your house is for like major defense reasons. Like there, I, you know, again, as I'm saying, those extreme cases are increasing in number. Like there are open Nazis that live like in the County that I live in. Mm -hmm. Um, there's people I see, you know, 3% are tattoos and 3% are bumper stickers everywhere I go. Um, and, but that's, that goes back to like the MAGA hat guy kind of thing. I know what that means most people don't know what that means yeah so it's also like am i the vanguard of the community no of course not like that's not um anything that i would be doing myself so then what is the situation like you have roving gangs showing up that are you know by by the point that that happens they're going to make it where like you someone like me couldn't own a gun or whatever then it's like okay so you know, I'm, I would plan on probably being out of the country at that point, like, and, oh, they make it difficult to get out of the country. It's like, okay, whatever. But it's, it's not something that I'm looking forward to, but it's also not something that I'm thinking that anybody should be thinking themselves outside of an organized capacity is doing anything about. If like hardcore fascism shows up, you know, like, uh, yeah, uh, 1930s and 1940s style fascism shows up in America. You owning a handgun is not going to be the thing that stops it. 
No, I mean, <laughs> like it, the the I the uh, the old Second Amendment argument about man, if if just Germany had a Second Amendment and all of the Jews had had guns, then maybe the Holocaust doesn't happen. It that's not how any of that would have gone down at all. <laughs> like, that's no, not. I mean, I live in an apartment building. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming thirty percent at least would be on their side. Sixty percent would be complacent and just be like, "Well, it's a living," you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, so it's it's not like you know y- you think about the French resistance and honorable, sure, um, great. Okay, well, they were able to find a way to do it. So if it came to like that- Like Bastille Day then, works out really great when like all of the the guns in the country are all stored in like one building. <laughs> and, right. And it's a race between two, an organized army and a, and a, and a, and a raging mob of who's going to get to them first. <laughs> but that's not the situation we have anymore. <laughs> yeah. I guess the solution is learn a second language. <laughs> yeah. As soon as you can. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. I think it's, it's tough to be optimistic <laughs> at all, but, um, I think, I think optimism, I heard somebody describe optimism is, is like weighing your bets and then thinking that you have a good outcome. Um, but hope is, uh, even in the most dire of odds, you still believe that something good can happen. So maybe I'm more hopeful than optimistic of the situation. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're back on your Obama shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to buy the shepherd fairy NFT of that. <laughs> what a guy what a guy like you know i i see um he put you know and okay my i i do stenciled art um some people have kind of said like it looks a little bit like his stuff i don't really see it um but uh you know it is what it is and uh now it's like shepherd fairy comes out with a new piece let me guess it's a portrait of somebody's face yep (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah, I I guess the uh, if the, if there's an optimistic takeaway from from this conversation is that um I think that uh the massive climate disaster that we're experiencing and we're about to be in the complete throes of is going to be so uh impossible to ignore in the near future that uh any idea of like i i think a lot of these cultural issues well we're gonna look back in like 15 years and be like oh my god can't believe so many people were wasting time on this shit (laughs) when when like uh now we're actually having to have like real situations of people you know uh starving and massive migrations of humanity across the globe and huge refugee crisis that are not caused by uh uh some angry oligarch who wants to invade other countries in in the former eastern europe like the uh 
if you want to look forward, uh, then just just know that uh, maybe in 15 years, no one will really give a fuck about abortion rights because we're so concerned about burning alive. Yeah, I mean, it's it is seriously like that's kind of why I also think the, you know, arming or whatever people is not really the I, I mean, obviously. um what is the word? Not endangered groups, but like people who are susceptible to the coming climate mm-hmm. issues. Yeah, yeah. Possibly that's that's a good idea. Uh, but it's like the the <laughs> climate apocalypse almost guarantees that it's not going to be 1930s style fascism. Right, that right. Comes in, it's just going to be eco fascism, which mm-hmm. is no more immigration, so that the earth cooks and kills people in the countries that we don't like oh yeah well i mean so that's in india is 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 boiling from the inside out right now and it's got the biggest population of a country on the planet next to china and uh there's just uh, tens of millions of people that are dealing with like surface temperatures on the ground of around 140 degrees um so I, and that's not a blip. That's like the side of the future that a lot of people are going to be experiencing. So I don't know. Uh, the, the The silver lining is, uh, you know, worrying about this these the culture war issues is we just probably won't have to worry about them that long. Yeah, the you know, which I don't know. the The take that I heard on a podcast about the um, uh, Kendrick Lamar album where he was just kind of like, leave me alone. <laughs> I was like, mm, that, I don't know. That sounds kind of, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I understand you were trying to say all these things were issues years ago, but <sighs> saying like, I'm just going to live my life now. And in my bubble, it's, it's fine. And people like each other. That's you're going to be confronted. You're just delaying confrontation with, um, yeah, yeah. The heads of these things. So, I don't know. I think being aware of them is very good, but uh, I appreciate you allowing me to take this time to vent. Well, that's fine. You had you had a couple weeks to build up. It's been a while since you had a release. Yeah. Do you want me to hit record now? Yeah, now we can start recording the podcast. <laughs> I think maybe next week. <laughs> well, I'm Eric spent. Eric has seven pages of notes on... Uh, Sagittarius A star and the the black hole imaging that was released uh what was it May 6th the the big announcement came down yeah I mean a lot of articles I saw were like the 12th or something so yeah maybe it took them a few days to talk about it but yeah so we we have undeniable imaging evidence of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy after from two years ago when we saw the first imaged evidence of a supermassive black hole at the center of M87's galaxy, which we talked about on the old Black Hole podcast. Um, But we got a lot of notes for that, so maybe we'll talk about it next week. Yeah. Man, maybe we should start deciding our topics more than a week in advance. We can start teasing them. Yeah, yeah, look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Really get those listener numbers up. Well, uh, thank thanks for everyone for listening. If you're still listening uh, through through our little uh, vent therapy session, I hope I hope we didn't depress anyone too badly. Until next week, bye.